welcome to the UC Architects. This is episode 32, recorded Saturday, January 4th, 2014. I'm your host, Link MVP, Pat Richard, and, and today I have my fellow cohorts in crime, Sirkin Veraglu, Stahl Hansen, John Cook, Tom Arbuthnot, Justin Morris, Michael Van Hornbeek, and Tim Harrington. And a special guest, uh, Jamie Stark from Microsoft. Uh, this episode is proudly sponsored by Instant Technologies with solutions for link e-discovery, real-time alerts, and content center deployments. For information on Instant or to try a free evaluation, visit instant-tech.com or download and try their e-discovery application at tryhrauditor.com. And we're also sponsored today by Kemp Technologies. Kemp Technologies is the number one price performance load balancer for Microsoft workloads and is a global certified Microsoft partner in both messaging and communications. Kemp's load balancers and ADCs come with configuration templates for link and exchange. Kemp's new virtual load balancers are the most popular on the market and have all the same features as their hardware load balancers. For more information and to download a free trial, go to kemptechnologies.com. So welcome, everybody, and uh, Jamie, welcome to our uh, circus. Uh, tell us uh, what what you do at Microsoft and what you're responsible for. Thing to know is that I clearly don't have enough three-letter uh, acronyms after <laughs> my name. Goodness gracious, I'm honored to be uh, joining this austere group. Um, so everyone, my name is Jamie. I look after voice interoperability and networking in, uh, in the Microsoft Link marketing organization. I've been around in doing uh, first office communication server and then now Link for, uh, for quite a little bit. I was, uh, I was hanging out when um, we launched the thing in San Francisco and been, uh, been doing, uh, doing fun stuff ever since. So thanks for the opportunity to come and hang out with you all. Hey, welcome. And I know that uh, um, you spoke at the Link Conference uh, 2013 in San Diego. And uh, are you speaking again in uh, 2014? Yeah, um, I actually have a, <laughs> I have a little bit of a dual role there. Um, so I look after the content for the Link Conference, which is um, vague and mysterious and and, and, and horrifying. Um, I, I am responsible for ensuring that we're talking about all the right stuff. Um, so I look after all the tracks, and I've got a team of folks who who um, who are responsible for particular areas of content within each track. But I try to kind of look after the whole kit and caboodle, in addition to side events that we're doing and labs and other you know kind of fun things at the conference. In addition to that, I try to give myself a couple speaking slots to you know make sure I'm I'm not just dead weight. Um, I've had the opportunity to go and talk at other industry conferences as well. I show up at TechEd and, like I said, the previous Link Conference and Enterprise Connect and stuff like that. And you'll find me on Twitter every once in a while, um, at no more phones. should anyone be interested. Sweet. So do we have you to thank for the, the cool location uh, for Link Conference 2013 and 2014? Not exclusively. So um, I, there's a fairly decent-sized team of, uh, of us at the, the company who look after the conference. Um, I have a colleague, Lauren Horgan, who's responsible for the conference all up. She pays the bills and you know makes sure that all the um, all the different work streams kind of run on time. And uh, she was uh, she's definitely involved in that decision as well to make sure that uh, we had a great site. You know, <clears throat> for those that um, I didn't know about the previous uh, conference, you know, is is in uh, is in February last year. 
Um, now I guess we can say last year it's 2014. Um, it was in San Diego at a at a little resort called the Hotel Del Coronado. It was our first conference. We weren't sure like quite many people would show up, and so we're like, yeah, five, six hundred. And this Hotel Del Coronado is gorgeous. It's on the beach. And it's warm in February and. Seattle and many other places around the world are cold and rainy or snowy or whatever. I thought this would be awesome. And um, we quickly have the capacity of that venue. Um, we had we were pleasantly surprised at the amount of interest there in is uh, coming to uh, to hear about and talk about Lake. And so uh, the community came out. We were bursting at the seams, somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand um, folks on site, and that includes you know the crew and everything else. Um, I actually just uh, ran the numbers for Vegas, and we are now over a thousand as of this point. You know, a couple minutes ago um, for Vegas, and that and that doesn't include the crew, and that doesn't include the folks behind the scenes to you know kind of make the conference awesome. It's just you know, partners, customers, and speakers, effectively. And so um, we're super excited about this. I know it's a often used phrase at Microsoft, but man. We're um, we're really tickled with how uh, how well the link community comes out in all of its facets to support the conference. So we're just uh, we're really really excited to be able to put on another great show. Cool. Although I you know I, I don't think we'll have the the same cool factor as San Diego in that we had you know Navy SEALs running up and down the the beach there in front of the hotel. That was, <laughs> know, that was kind right? of interesting. We're on the flight line. <laughs> Why were you staring at the SEALs, Pat? Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> there'll, there'll be other types of people uh, running up and down the street, right? Yeah, yeah. There'll definitely be some. You'll probably see me staggering up and down the strip quite a bit. But uh, we'll, we'll come back and talk about the uh, the conference here in a minute. Um, top stories, uh, not really a, a link or an exchange story, but um, there is some concern that it, it could be expanded into at least link. Um some SharePoint uh, evangelists uh, are being served with cease and desist letters from Microsoft for their use of the word SharePoint in their blogs and and uh, social media and things like that. And um, I know it's kind of given people kind of a sour grapes uh, uh, taste and um, there's concern that, you know, Microsoft could expand that into other areas such as Link. Probably not exchange because exchange is kind of a common word in the dictionary. But um, uh, Michael, you had uh, some thoughts on this. Yeah. Um, so basically, the commotion started, I think, somewhere in December, end of December, because a well-known website, SharePoint Magazine, was taking offline. Um, apparently, because they had a uh, takedown notice uh, from Microsoft, because they were using the word SharePoint. Uh, so that upset quite a lot of people uh, in the community. Um, which is understandable because, um, as far as I know, SharePoint Magazine has been around for quite a while. Um, but uh, immediately, people started reacting quite heavily, um, certainly in light of the issues with or the, the, the things Microsoft has done over the past few months. You know, they canceled MCM, uh, they, they canceled TechNet, and now people are saying, well, they'll, um, they'll take down more blogs, more websites, and, and, and so on and so on. Um, and I, I do understand where that fear or where that anger comes from. But I think that uh, in this case, you know, um, maybe they they had some some right to 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 do a takedown notice. The only thing that I don't agree on is they did it way too late. Um, they should have done it 
early on when SharePoint Magazine was um, was launched, and as far as I know, it's several years ago, and then it would have been, you know, totally okay. Um, but from a purely legal point of view, I think, you know, the confusion that SharePoint Magazine was not from Microsoft, as, as maybe, it wasn't too obvious, maybe. So um, I, I, I do get it, and I don't think that Microsoft is actually, you know, hunting down blogs actively. Uh, whoever uses Exchange or Link or, or Office 365 or SharePoint, uh, because I, I, I honestly don't want to believe that they're like that. Um, and and to give you an example, uh, our our own user group in Belgium, we have Pro Exchange, Pro Link, and Pro Office 365. So yes, we are definitely using these names in our domain name, in our user group name, and we have. Haven't had any takedown notices so far, so I hope by putting this out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some people thinking me. about Link. There's quite a few blogs where they have the word sure. Link somewhere in it, you know, so yeah, sure. and, and quite prominent ones too. And, and you know, my my concern is, and, and my wife works for uh, an intellectual property law firm that deals with you know some high-profile trademarks and copyrights and patents and things like that, and she's worked there for for many many years and and their philosophy has always been that if you're going to protect your brand and and um, prosecute uh, those who infringe upon it that you have to prosecute everybody you become aware of or you can't prosecute anyone and so that was my concern when I read this is all right if they're gonna start doing this they're they're gonna go after everybody and that could be expanded into you know other products such as link uh, but probably not uh, exchange, um, and I, I, I think that they could have handled it better and basically just said, "Look, you, you know, you're infringing upon us. Why don't you change the name to something else or make it less uh, like it's, uh, you know, Microsoft, uh, a Microsoft product, or, you know, tied directly to Microsoft." Yeah, I mean, you know, they basically right, said, you know, right, right, you know, we're we're chopping you off at the knees, basically. And the first, the first ones that I thought that they would come after are the the idea scale websites because they have both link and exchange in the name of them and they use the logo, uh, but they they clearly say that they're not affiliated with Microsoft and so, you know I, I'm kind of kind of biting my nails waiting to see if we if we get something about that saying that we have to take that down and. Um, you know, or that they want us to, you know, have a usage license or whatever they called it, which would be fine. I, I have no problem with that. But I can certainly see Microsoft's uh, uh, viewpoint. I think most of the people in our group have had somebody um, blatantly steal content from our blog or whatever and put it on theirs and kind of claim it as their own. And you kind of have to go after that in, in kind of the same vein. So. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, as you said, um, the way they handled things um, isn't there. You know, it, it wasn't the best way to handle it. Um, just you know, putting out a takedown notice and that's it. Um, it's it's pretty sorry the word, but it's pretty lame the way they handled this. Um, and it seems that you know uh, whoever takes those decisions at Microsoft, they have no feeling of of community whatsoever, because they've done it this way with TechNet, they've done it like this with the MCM, they've done it again with the SharePoint magazine website. So clearly they need some PR people that you know step up and and say, well, let's try and do this more uh, friendly. 
and they might have more buy-in from the community because you know sending out a takedown notice from one day to the other without any warning whatsoever just you know hits in like a bomb into the community and that those you need those people you know Microsoft needs those people as much as we need Microsoft um, so right. I hope you know it's it's kind of a conversation we started and. Uh, we won't see anything like this, you know, uh, like no warning uh, things again. But hey. yeah, from a just quickly from a product group kind of perspective, there's no plans here, right? Like <laughs> we're not, we're, at least from a link perspective, we can't talk about anything with SharePoint. But um, that you know, we're not we're not looking to you know go after and do this stuff. But I do understand, you know, uh, Pat, as you're saying, like there's a there's a, a, a legal requirement that that any trademark copyright holder needs to needs to pursue on these things, and you know I think in, in a lot of cases it's just it, it's that it comes down to that right. Um, but clearly there's tremendous value in the community, and you know my being here is a, is one of the reflections of like. We see that value in the community, and we want to foster that, and that's a that's a big part of the the work that at least I do in marketing, and my colleagues do as well. That's much appreciated too. Yeah. Well, if they come after us, Jamie, we're going to say Jamie said it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I guarantee you that that just which is a, from just kind of a, a you know how how this stuff kind of generally works is that there's a there's a group that looks after. You know, product and trademark and those types of issues, and they're just not a part of the product team. You know, they're they're not. That's not. You know, it's a whole different organization within the company, right? Yeah, that, it's that goes it's and black and white stuff. stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and and the problem is, is that um, you know, I I kind of followed some of the things about this SharePoint instance, and you know, it, it sounded to me like, you know, these people were so turned off by this that they basically just said, "Screw it, we're not even going to deal with this anymore." You know, they're going to be heads down and do their job, and and the resource that they brought to the community is essentially um, dead. And and I think that's that's the real disappointment and, and what's really sad about this whole thing. So uh, next up, uh, important changes to the Forefront product line. So uh, Microsoft uh, made an announcement uh, in the middle of December um, that they will no longer uh, release uh, full versions of Forefront Unified Access Gateway or UAG um, is John. Are you surprised by this? I well, I mean, I don't know. I think it, you know we were sort of surprised by TMG um, going away because they haven't really done much to that product in a long time. But UAG is more than just um, you know uh, a, a proxy. You know, it, it's used for a lot of other things. So I actually was kind of surprised because you know, the, so if you look, if you read in the article, we'll link. Or read any of the news about it? You know they're looking at you know the uh, the uh, web application proxy role in in 2000 Windows uh, Server 2012 R2 is kind of a replacement for the basic proxy piece. But there's all those you know application level proxy and direct access. Um, but there's you know application level proxy stuff that UAG did pretty well. That you know it's not going to be a direct replacement for that. So I kind of shot surprised. But these days nothing surprises me. <laughs> so, but well, to be honest, you know they. Who used UAG? I, I don't know that many companies that actually, you know, actively use this, uh, use it compared to TMG, for instance. Yeah, I mean, there was one. I, I, the most I saw it deployed was a with direct access because, you know, 
it was, you know, here, if you want to do direct access, use it. Use UHG was kind of the guidance, right? But um, I saw a lot of it with, like, ADFS and, and tokenizing, you know, uh, access between, you know, um, SharePoint a lot, too, I saw, you know, with, so if you want to have external partner companies come in and give SharePoint contact, content, you know, sort of, a, you know, not anonymously, but using pass-through creds kind of thing, UHG usually was, was, was a you know, forerunner in being in front of that, but that's the only place I saw it, you know, predominantly. Yeah, well, uh, I, I wasn't, you know, surprised at all, and, and I'm not too uh, sad about it, it, to see it leave, because UAG, with all due respect, I didn't like the product, uh, it was a crappy product. Uh, from beginning to the end, um, and you know, being built on top of TMG or partially, it wasn't you know a big shock to know they they were going to kill it sooner or later anyway because they killed TMG anyway uh, as well. So yeah, and along in the same announcement, they Microsoft did say that they will be releasing a new version of uh, FIM Forefront Identity Manager. So the Forefront name looks like it's going to live on a little bit longer, but I think that's the last. Uh, the last product in the in the forefront family, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, I think so as well. Um, hmm. Maybe they they go back to calling it um, MIS or ILM <laughs> or whatever name it had before. Um, hmm. It had many names, didn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so look for look for a new version of FIM. Sometime. Yeah, and so it won't be available after after July 1st, 2014, and uh, mainstream support ends April 14th, 2014, and extended goes until April 14th, 2020. Which if you're still running anything <laughs> that all in 2020, well. Oh uh, yeah, I was just <clears throat> thinking. You know, with UAG, it, it never really supported. It was never really officially supported for Link. You could use it for web publishing. Uh, items, but it always broke mobility and link. So yeah. it was always a struggle for us, especially when you're talking to a company that may already have UAG or is thinking about UAG uh, for publishing exchange or their SharePoint, and then having to talk with those companies about, hey, well, it's not supported for link. We need to find a different solution for link if you're going to use mobility. So actually, this announcement uh, pleases me a little bit because I spend a lot of time talking about defending myself why we can't use UAG and now it's pretty easy. You know, it's off the table, it's end of life, so uh, it, it'll make link folks at least my job a lot easier. Yeah, and you don't have to try those workarounds and and spend a lot of time doing that. So it's a good thing <laughs> from link yeah. perspective. And so now that TMG's been gone for a little while, what's what's everybody going to right now? I still have people oh, still, still trying to beat TMG into, into, the, into the environment. It's I'm everything just getting customers from... to buy sort of load balancers and stuff now, like, you know, UCAMPs and NetScalers and things. Right. Yeah, basically the same thing here. Um, a lot of companies start using their F5s, NetScalers. They're buying camps uh, to replace that functionality, and they're quite happy with it. So. Yeah, yeah I mean, ours is the same. As, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, all, ours is the same. All of our deployments with reverse proxy for Link is is basically through hardware load balancers. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot more F5 up to too. And camp. Yeah, and yeah. I know that, yeah. that Microsoft is pushing the, the web application proxy as well. Yeah, and ISARR. And uh, stuff like that. <laughs> what I call well. pirate proxy. R. R. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think lots the, of different ADFS, things, really. The ADFS requirement for the web application proxy is a little bit of a blocker. Yeah, it is. All right, next up, another uh, potential shocker. We'll, we'll see if it actually pans out, but there is a rumor that uh, TechEd will be discontinued after, uh, is it next year um, or this year, that it could be, this year could be the last year. So Mary Jo Foley has an article on ZDNet about it. And um, just saw, just heard about this just before we started recording. But um, uh, 
Jamie, what do you think? Let's drag you into this. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, for, for link people, it doesn't matter because we have the link conference, and that's the be-all, end-all of conferences anyways. But Oh, you're sweet. I appreciate that. The thing, that, the thing is, though, I've had, I've had lots of people ask, like, hey, I've got one conference to go to. And and I'm interested in Link. What should it be? You know, clearly it's it's Link Conference, and we want to make sure that's you know that solves every everything from a from a Link perspective for an attendee. At the same time, you know, I can imagine lots of IT pros who need to be specialists in multiple products and can invest in a in a you know in one conference where they get you know tons of stuff about Link, but don't have you know a lot on SharePoint or Exchange or Windows Server or whatever, and that's Frankly, that's one of the reasons I like to go to tech ed. Like, it gives me an opportunity if I'm speaking, you know, yeah, I've got, you know, a session or two, but then I hang out at the booth and I get to talk with, with you know, attendees. I get to go and, you know, hear Racinovich talk about kernel, you know, kernel-level debugging or, you know, he's been doing a lot of Azure stuff. And, like, it's phenomenal, right? Like, it's just, it's, it's really, really good stuff. One of the things from a, just from a pure product team perspective that ends up getting rough for us, though, is that all these shows end up being kind of stacked up on one another. And so we, we have this, <clears throat> what we call event season that starts with tech ed and then goes through kind of WPC and then a little bit into the, into the summer, WPC being the Worldwide Partner Conference. And so we get just slammed from like May through kind of August, um, doing lots and lots of events. Um, at the same time, though, I personally I I get tons of value out of out of tech ed, both from a um, you know just to satisfy my own curiosity about other stuff that's going on in the um, in the mix of the company, and then as well you know, getting a, getting kind of a different um, segment of IT pros and being able to being able to talk with folks and and kind of hear what's what's going on. Um, I hope it doesn't go away. I I'm a I'm a big fan of that. Of that conference, I think that there's some things that we could do to help, you know, address the audience a little better and stuff like that. But it ends up being um, kind of above my pay grade because of the the scale of that show. Right? We we end up getting maybe I don't know a track of maybe 15 or so sessions, um, depending upon the depending upon the particular year. So we're kind of small peanuts in the in the kind of big you know tech ed sort of uh, thing. But we we're, we always participate and we always dig it. We're in the call for content right now, as a matter of fact, for TechEd. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be surprised if they canceled it. I mean, I, I've always thought of TechEd as kind of the conference to go to if you're if you're an IT uh, uh, specialist, like like you mentioned, a multidiscipline person who exactly. has to deal with all these different technologies. Um, it's kind of the conference to go to if you want to go to a true Microsoft conference. You know, obviously there's other conferences like Connections and stuff like that that are non-Microsoft uh, sponsored events, but um, I, I just don't see where they would come out ahead by by dropping this. I mean, yeah, like, it... you know, likely there's there's some other there, there's some other thing that's going on, right? If there's you know if if there is going to be a change in tech ed, it's not that tech ed disappears and there's just a vacuum, right? That there's a that there's a a, a larger order and that nothing to announce. Don't have any don't have any knowledge of this. I learned about this. So I was talking with you guys this morning. <laughs> but, yeah, um... Jamie's email address is. Uh... <laughs> But um, but yeah, the only thing I could I can imagine is that there's some uh, there, there's some other plan that's that's going on that you know whether it bifurcates or it you know does something different I don't know but I, I it would be from my from my perspective I think it'd be a loss I, I, that we get tons of value 
of participating in Tech Ed, and it's a it's a good show, especially in Europe. Um, I found that um, I found that the the Tech Ed Europe shows that I've been to have been some of the best. Just the the attendees and the the technical veracity of the conversations I get into and is 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 really stellar. It's folks that come out to Tech Ed Europe generally are not saying anything about Tech Ed US or any of the other Tech Eds, but the folks that come out to Tech Ed Europe are just are on it and they're serious and they've got some you know great great questions and problems and design challenges and everything else that I've just been really really impressed with. You know, you had mentioned, uh, you know, bifurcation. Um, you know, in the last two years, we have seen the Link Conference pop up. We've seen the return of MEC, the Microsoft Exchange Conference. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm curious, and not that I expect you to have the answer to this, but I'm curious as to what kind of impact um, those two conferences have had on uh, tech ed, whether, you know, there's been a noticeable decrease in uh, attendance because people who are, you know, dedicated to a specific discipline, whether it's Exchange or Link, um, are going to those conferences instead, or or what? I would be stunned if there's any sort of impact that our tiny little conference <laughs> makes on on anything, right? I mean, I, I, I love that, I love that you guys are so pro-Link conference and it's phenomenal and I'm honored, but... You know, we're still we're still baby steps, right? Like this is our we've had one good show, and we hope to have one more good show coming up in February. And uh, and and I I don't know I I I I'm not yet at the point where I think that our our little show is uh is making that making that kind of impact across the across stuff like TechEd. I don't know what what max attendance looks like. I know SharePoint's huge. The SharePoint show typically is around I don't know 10k or so. That's a wow. really, really big show, which so it's, then that's a whole different you know scale and yeah. But those are all else. developers, and they're kind of crazy, anyways. <laughs> 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 but uh, you know, speaking speaking of Link, Link Conference, let's talk about that for a few minutes. So yeah, um, so it's next month, uh, February. Oh, it's horrifying. Yeah, it is. It's <laughs> I know, month. right? There's a lot to do. <laughs> yeah, but it's probably a little easier having one already under the belt, right? I mean, it's it's you probably don't have that for the the first time jitters like like you probably did last year, but you know it's going to be obviously a much a, a bigger event this year. Yeah, um, so that was one of the that was one of the first things we started off with, and because you asked earlier, like why'd you pick Vegas? And you know, even with the the thoughts around you know, hey, Vegas is a party town, you know, no one's going to go to sessions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I I generally think that that the reverse is true. Like, yeah, there's lots of opportunities to you know get out and be distracted by lots of different things. But Vegas really does know how to put on good meetings, and I've been consistently impressed just from a from an event logistics perspective at the at everybody that we've that we've worked with in Vegas, from the Aria Hotel through the Conference Center, the the side events that we're planning, the party. Um, everyone's just like really, really pro and understands how to how to do great events for lots of people, um, and that is tremendously helpful, right? So it takes it takes some of the just kind of block and tackle logistical stuff. They already know and they've already got that down, and the and the the folks that work in those in those facilities are are just on it, and so that helps us focus on our on our core jobs and make sure the contents 
awesome, that there's you know great demos, that there's great opportunities for labs and all those other things that make the conference really valuable for folks to come out. Yeah, I've never actually been to Vegas before, so I'm excited on, on two levels, but also a little bit concerned. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm capable of. <laughs> Trust me, John, we're all a little concerned about you in Vegas. Uh, you all have to watch me. <laughs> My wife we leaves Sunday, so, so right. after Sunday I'm probably going to be in, in, in trouble. <laughs> So, uh, Jamie, you mentioned that uh, there was uh, a thousand people or so at the 2013 conference. What's capacity for 2014? Um, I think we've got capacity around two grand. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. And so the thing is, is that what we saw last year is that as soon as everybody got back from break, registration just went nuts. And so we've had an increase in the rate of registration up until this point already. And so we know that from this point forward, based well, we expect from this point forward, based on what we'd seen from 2013, the registration is going to have a similar spike. I'm 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 not saying the word you know sold out or anything anything close to that. But if you're listening to this now, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to you know for you guys to get it all edited and post out on the web. But if you're listening to this now and you want to go to Link Conference and you haven't registered yet, please register. Because it's highly likely that there's that there's a big swath of people who now have um, 2014 calendar year budget. They've got approval from their boss, etc., and they're they're signing up right now to go. And so we we definitely want to make sure that everyone uh everyone can make it out. So please sign up soon. And I hope to give you you know some reasons to go here on this uh on this <laughs> podcast as well. There's um. <laughs> I, I'm looking at our session list. You can you can see most of the sessions. Um, we've gotten them published right before the break, and um, they're up at linkconf.com, L-Y-N-C-C-O-N-F.com, um, and uh, just click on sessions, and you can you can kind of get a look. Um, but you know, a bunch of really really deep content. One of the things that we gotten as a um, feedback from the previous conferences, hey, we, we, we love, you know, some of the higher level things, but boy, we really want to also have kind of deep, you know, 300, 400 level, looking at Wireshark traces, you know, looking at stuff on the wire. I want to see SIP ladder diagrams of, you know, edge flow, and, and I really want to get into the, to the nitty gritty. Um, so we've amped up those sessions, then we're also, from a scheduling perspective, going to be spreading those out better across the time frame. Um, I made the call last year that hey, we should kind of have more of our high-level sessions early and our and our more deeper sessions later. Um, thinking that I want to you know bring up the I want to kind of raise the bar of, um, of 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 understanding right early on in the um, in the conference so that that way towards the end of the conference everyone will kind of have a uh, have a baseline for um, for content can be able to attend some of those three four hundred level sessions. Um, and get some value out of it. But generally, the response was no. I want to have 400-level sessions from the first session time slot to the end. <laughs> and so um, we're doing that. We've got a lot more space on the, uh, on the exhibit floor. Um, last year, we, we sold out of our conference, um, our conference sponsorships probably within like the first day or two. It was, it was just ridiculous how much, uh, how much interest there was from the, from the partner side of, of the house. And that's and, um, you, you sold out again this year for that too, right? Yeah, yeah, we sold out again, and then we and then we rejiggered our uh, our show floor plan, and we opened up another like I don't know a half dozen or a dozen spots, and then those sold out, 
and the show floor is gigantic. Um, and so we've got we've got tons and tons and tons of companies who have um, are you know doing like Camp, who have done uh, you know load balancers and application delivery controllers for Link, um, gateway products, SBCs. Um, we've got you know IT services. Uh, we've got implementation partners. We've got ISVs that build solutions on top of Link. They're all going to be there, right? It's um, it, it it really is amazing to see. Those guys are all posted up on the website as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, the, that for last, last year, that was one of the best things because there's stuff that, you know, I mean, you work with, with Link every day, but you still might not see this headset or this endpoint or, you know, stuff that I've just never even, you know, talked to anybody about. I didn't know Sennheiser made the uh, headsets until, until the Link conference. So, you know, I mean, it was, uh, it was cool for me to walk through. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't know these guys made that or, you know, never saw I, that I, before. Yeah, and and last year, you know, it was a it was kind of a small space, right? This year, oh, yeah. I think it's just going to be it's going to you're just going to be floored walking into the space, and it's just going to be a sea of businesses, and they all have something to talk about with Link. It's it's going to be it's going to be really quite a sight. And then we're so just real quick, we're arranging the booth as well. One of the pieces of feedback we got from last year, like, hey, we couldn't find the Microsoft kind of demo area. It was buried kind of beneath a bar and this other area of. Um, at the at the Hotel del Coronado this year, we're right in the center of the expo floor. So it's all like Tech Ed is, where the Microsoft area is in the center, and all the partners kind of surround that. We're doing that same model, so um, it's going to be really easy. It's going to be a kind of a central place for people to go and hang out. You'll be able to find um, speakers and other Microsoft professionals are going to be hanging out there, um, and just kind of a part of the whole kind of community that's represented by the expo floor. And and in that same area, there's going to be a certain group of people uh, doing a recording. Really? Are we going to do that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, so, it's going to be great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the UC Architects will be doing a live recording from that same area there. So um, stop by. We're going to have some people, um, not only from the UC Architects, but uh, hopefully some product group people. And uh, Jamie, you'll be there. We're going to drag you up there uh, kicking and screaming if we have to. <laughs> And then, I'd be honored if you want to uh, have me on again, depending upon, you know, you've already committed to it. So, you know, I don't know, depending upon how this one goes, <laughs> they want to revisit that decision. Well, you know, we we, uh, we did something similar at uh, Connections, and it, and it went off real well. We had um, three or four people from uh, the product group and uh, Tony Redmond and, and um, you know, so – Come on by, and we'll do a live recording. We'll we'll talk about you know stuff that we normally talk about, news and events that have happened, as well as get some insight from people in the product group, um, and do a live uh, Q and A Q&A session if there's enough time. So hopefully um, you can come by and get some questions answered, and uh, and heckle us and throw things at us, and uh, and hopefully it'll it'll come across real well. And I think we're going to do this after the keynote as well, so we'll have the opportunity to discuss. The currently NDA type things that would be announced at the keynote that'll be kind of hot news and hot topics that they're just coming out of the conference. So I think that'll be really fun too. Yeah, excellent. I'm looking forward to that. So uh, so stop by and and also uh, another announcement from the UC Architects is um, we are partnering with uh, our good friends over at Event Zero to have not one but two different parties both on the same day. Um, It'll be they, they will be on the same day as the welcome party. There will be one party before the welcome, uh, the Microsoft welcome party, and one after. You can come to either one, but you do need an invite. And here's how you get an invite: you send an email to promotions at theucarchitects.com, and you have to include 
which of the two you'd like to come to, and you have to answer these two questions. Who is the party being sponsored by, and what is the name of the person of our special guest on this episode? So just send us an email. We'll get you on the list. And the only reason we're doing that is because the room we have isn't the biggest room in the world, and we do need to kind of uh, make sure we're not going to run into a problem with the fire marshal or or whatever the case may be. Um, I will tell you that the the later of the two parties will be probably a little more of the Vegas style. Um, both will have an open bar, but uh, you're welcome to come by, meet us. Uh, Event Zero is going to give every person who shows up a 300-user license for their entire product suite for an entire year. And um, if you ask me or John or anybody else that uses their products, um, they have got some really cool stuff for Link. And um, I think by the time... The uh, the conference comes around. They'll have some stuff uh, for exchange as well. So, um, you know, check them out at eventzero.com. But uh, send in your email if you want to get an invite, and uh, we look forward to seeing you. I just sent my email in. I hope I got the questions right. Pounding away their keyboards. Yeah, so look forward to seeing everybody. Um, and that's it for top stories uh, for this episode. Heading into the link-specific stuff. Um, an article came out that kind of piqued my interest. Um, I have access to an environment in which the uh, Office Web Apps farm is directly accessible on the web. It's not uh, published through a reverse proxy. And uh, so obviously that caused me a little bit of concern. Um, but I found out that uh, another organization um, can actually add your Office Web App farm to their topology and publish it, and uh, by default, your Office web app servers will respond to requests from them. And so obviously that kind of, you know, got my little security hat on and kind of caused me a little concern. So um, there is an article out now on how to make some changes so that your Office web app farm will only listen to um, requests from your host, your link host. So it's just a, a couple commandlet uh, entries that you need to make. So we'll get a link to that up on the summary page. And the next thing is uh, kind of the bane of my existence. And Jamie, if I can if I can ask for for anything from Microsoft, they've got to fix this issue. And that is um, that you can have the same line URI defined in multiple places for multiple resources in Link. And um, it causes all kinds of problems and takes forever for you to figure out where it is. So um, if you try to assign a line URI to a user when another user already has that, um, you'll get an error saying it, that number is already in use. But you don't get an error if you try to assign that same line URI to, say, a, a response group workflow or an auto attendant. And um, it'll let you assign it, and then all of a sudden users are calling saying, hey, stuff's not working, and you run um, OCS logger, and you get all these really obscure errors about, you know, non-ambiguous names or numbers or whatever the case may be. So um, lately there's been a couple of um, uh, scripts that have popped up and methods for searching for a number to see if it's in use anywhere in link uh, before you assign it to something. So 
Um, we've got a couple of links that we'll put up on the um, the uh, summary page, but I also wanted to drink uh, to drag uh, Stahl into this about um, you know Stahl, you're going to talk about number availability in, at Link Conference and your scripts. So uh, what, what's going on with that? Yeah, so um, th- and this is a important topic I think for for Link and, and Enterprise Voice is the phone number management for line URIs uh, and one one aspect of, of this is find what number Numbers are in use, and, uh, and what user is uh, using it. But the other thing is also what numbers are available to use, and uh, and that was uh, and that's something I'm going to talk about in uh, in my Lincoln talk, and also uh, dig into PowerShell scripts and tools that um, can help you administer this. Uh, until uh, Microsoft um, help us create some tools for this as well. <laughs> that is phone number management in Link Server 2013 in the voice track that is already published and accepted. So yes, indeed. Uh, 400 level, by the way. So Stahl, I, I, I presume that you are not going to be pulling any punches in this uh, in this particular session. 400 uh, level means very, very, very technical. Yeah, so uh, expect some uh, cool PowerShell walkthroughs and uh, demos. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, cool. Um, look forward to that one. Yeah. So also where numbers are stored okay. and uh, how you can avoid assigning the same number to um, different uh, entities in, in Link. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's going to, going to be fun. Excellent. I, just real quick, I mean, this is one of the things that I'm super proud of with, with regard to the conference. Like, I, as I look through the, the set of, of speakers that we've got, I, I want to say a good 40 to 50% of our speakers are coming from the community, our MVPs and masters and and, and, and other folks that, that have lots and lots of great experience and, and can bring that experience and that kind of just practical, hey, this is this is the stuff you're going to run into as you get into a big voice deployment, be able to share that around with the community. So it's it's fantastic. Thanks for taking that on. Yeah, thanks. And, um, and for the community, I also want to, uh, for my talk, involve the community in to understand how phone number management is being done in different link deployments since this is there's no correct answer to do this but the info is there and and how do you use it and do you use an excel spread, spreadsheet and, and stuff like that so i created this uh, linkedin poll where uh, i hope as many as possible will vote and comment on how it's being done and uh, so i get some good 360 degrees view for my my talk and and make sure i uh, i pinpoint uh, the most pains that's out there. I did this morning. I voted. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, you even started I mean you started a good you know amongst the, our, our uh, we kind of we have different threads between us. Um, and that's a that's a really good topic because it is kind of the wild west so it's going to be that's actually a really good session I think because uh, that's one of the biggest pain points especially in large enterprises I see is with number management who owns it, you know, how does it get done? How does it filter down a link? Uh, so it's a that's a good topic. Yeah, I've I've looked at, you know, some third-party solutions like the one from Start Ready, which I thought had fabulous potential. Um, and it, it gets you 98% there, but the last 2% is enough to, to not use it, unfortunately. So, you know, like like Stahl and, and um, um, some of the other guys online that come up with, you know, some fancy PowerShell scripts, um, Microsoft, Jamie, really needs to address this in the next version of the product because I, I think this is a big gap. Yeah, I hear you. Um, and this is this is definitely a, another kind of great segue as uh, another one of the things we're looking to do at the conference is 
be able to open up um, our feedback mechanisms directly to uh, the public. So we actually have a very robust feedback engine, essentially, or set of processes that we run internally to capture um, not, you know, kind of big features like, hey, I, you know, want to have Link do, you know, X, Y, and Z, but, you know, really kind of nuanced, especially around voice features, especially around administrative controls, things like that, um, and be able to, to, to capture those um, clearly, be able to kind of articulate what those changes would be, and then, um, and then roll that information up to engineering in a way that, that can be consumed by them, you know, fairly, um, fairly rapidly. We've actually moved to a development model as well that allows us to, to iterate on these on these things and and put off little chunks and then release those in in cumulative updates. You've totally seen this happen in the mobile clients, especially like anonymous act, anonymous join on mobile is a great one where you know we we knew that this is this is a, a feature that folks were looking for. Um, we were able to we were able to get those out into into little small chunks into into um, into enhancements into the mobile clients. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of kind of very specific voice features we're doing the same thing with. And so actually at the conference we're going to have a whole series of sessions that are devoted to having people provide feedback into us, making those pieces of feedback actionable, and then pushing those up into engineering. We're looking to make this a um, a much more of a of kind of an open and transparent process with folks. The the feedback is tremendously important, and we want to show everybody that hey, the stuff doesn't just go into a bit bucket. Like we don't we don't route these emails to you know DevNull. Like these these pieces <laughs> of feedback are 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 really looked at, and we we you know we triage all this stuff, and we make sure that um, and the important things are getting done. So. Um, yet another kind of small plug, but we absolutely hear the hear the feedback, and and we want to you know be able to collect the stuff on Moss. Um, and so when when it's you know comes in one Z two Z with me and Twitter, it's one thing, but being able to have it come into our kind of canonical processes is, is really fantastic. And we've seen um, you know from a community led effort, um, the idea scale websites where um, people can submit ideas or, or gripes or beefs with a product and and people can you know up or down vote them and and add their comments and and you know obviously it's it's not a microsoft um related site but it's been interesting to see um how many ideas get submitted there that ultimately wind up being addressed in the product um, oh yeah i think yeah. um you know the link site which is link.ideascale.com you know, has uh, like over 200 ideas, I think. And, and I was looking the other day at how many are, are marked off as completed. And a lot of them have been. And, um, you know, some of them get a lot of somewhat heated discussion about, <laughs> you know, features that need to be added or, um, you know, people get on there and say, well, you know, PBXs have this feature. And, and people come out and say, well, that's fine that they have that feature, but how many people use it or is it, is it, utilized to the best of its ability or you know link already has that or whatever the case may be but it's it's it is interesting to see how much of that ultimately ends up in the product so um, oh yeah you know go ahead yeah i was just gonna say like there's stuff like you know mlpp the multi-level presence and preemption which is you know frequently used and i don't say frequently it is available for use in the military um, where you can you know the general can go and preempt a, a call that the colonel is is on 
you know, it's it, it's available in traditional PBX systems. You go and you talk to folks in the military, and they go, "Yeah, I, I used it once, and that was 20 years ago." Yeah. You know, is that a, is that a feature that makes sense to add into the link? Well, you know, we got to think about that. <clears throat> then there's stuff like that we've we've already considered, and that we've already said, "Nope, it doesn't make sense for us to go there." Um, my popular favorite one of that, and maybe I'll get a lot of flame mail on this, is is G.729 support on the egress edge of mediation server. Um, where you know folks say you know hey this is this is a codec that PBXs use I want to be able to to trunk to my PBX using G729 and we look at 729 and it's an old codec with terrible audio quality that has that's super patent encumbered and you know we go no like there's a lot of other better ways to to go and address this issue rather than um, us you know moving backwards from a media stack perspective by including 729 in our in our stack, so we're not going to we're not going to go that direction. All the Cisco um, guys just threw their phone, their 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 laptop. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I had to say <laughs> something say? controversial. Like, <laughs> what? Are you kidding? Yeah, no. So I, you know, so that's so that's one that we, you know, we'll. I, I think I've heard this, you know, since I started, right? Like, why doesn't Link do seven twenty nine? And that we've, you know, we we've continued to address and we'll continue to, you know, talk about. But we know that that's not one that we're gonna we're gonna be putting into the product anytime soon. Um, but there's, you know, there's many, many, many more that we look at. We go, wow, that's that's really interesting. That that solves a particular set of business cases that we hadn't considered. Um, you know, one one that comes to mind is group call pickup. You know, that that was a it's a really key scenario in a lot of Europe and a lot of Asia. Um, and we thought, you know, well, you can do team call and you can do response groups. We've got all these other ways to do it, but they're just not quite right. And the the workflows that are that are in those you know business processes at those at those companies are um, need to be supported. And group call pickup was the right way to do that. So that's why we added in C one for Link Server twenty thirteen. Now, if we could just get proxy SIP addresses, I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> and for number management, I would be happy. Yeah. Well, there you go. So that's the thing. Everyone everyone should be able to to come to these set of feedback sessions. We'll announce the dates and times of the conference, but everyone should be able to come to these feedback sessions and 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 have you know really good actionable feedback to be able to provide. Absolutely. Cool. Looking forward to that. Um, next up, John, you had uh, conferencing MCU issues that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, it's one of those things I came across. A few people have, have, have written about it, but I really hadn't come across it because I haven't installed a, uh, a 2013, Link 2013 node on, on 2012 R2 yet. So, uh, you know, generally the process is the same. Everything worked the same, you know, no real issues. But then as the server came up, I started noticing a bunch of uh, well, MCU infrastructure issues or event log issues um, pop up. And, you know, kind of looking through it, um, uh, it is t- there's a, it's kind of a known issue, and it has to do with, um, some security policy settings that, to change on the node. And like I said, I just I, we put a link to my blog article I, I wrote about it. It's pretty straightforward, um, pretty you know simple, just a, an S-channel S issue, change registry, good to go. Um, but, uh, you know, it's very specific. You could bang your head out if you didn't look for it. It took me a while to actually find, based on the event log entries, you know, IDs, what, what the problem was. So um, it's something to definitely check out if you're at all interested. <laughs> <That is. laughs> all right, good info. Um, Justin, 
Telefonica shuts down Jajau. Yeah, so this was announced um, last month that the massive European telco Telefonica were shutting down Jaja. And this is particularly relevant to us in the UC community because Jaja used to provide the link online to phone functionality for users with uh, Link in Office 365. Um, so that was obviously deprecated a while ago, uh, and now Jaja is going away ghost as well. And I think this is just telling that uh, the impact that Skype is having at a sort of web carrier perspective uh, level because, you know, the, the guys like Jar Jar that are sort of tier two SIP, uh, SIP providers are going going out, then, you know, this is sort of telling of, uh, of the, the market share that Skype has, I think. Good. And there was uh, some information that came out um, uh, not long ago about uh, Skype and being able to make uh, audio calls um, back and forth between Link, too. So um, we'll get some information about that up on the summary page. Uh, next up, uh, extending link for large meetings. Uh, Tim, you uh, looked at this L plus solution. What's that about? Yeah, I mean, uh, in the current Microsoft uh, link solution, you know, large meeting support's been a major issue, and it, it really comes up all the time in RFPs and projects. That it, and, it, and it's really a necessary solution for most companies. They're expecting link to solve a lot of their collaboration needs, and it, it just doesn't for large meetings. Now, right now, Microsoft supports 250 concurrent attendees out of the box and with dedicated pools up to 1,000. And, you know, let's be honest, you know, how many of us have actually deployed uh, dedicated pools for large meeting support? A, and B, if you have, has it actually been successful? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really a pain, and it's something that, that either needs to get fixed within the product or, you know, something like Event Builder, who has come up with their own solutions, so... Event Builders has developed a solution called L Plus that extends both on-premises and link online deployments, and it offers a way to utilize a third-party service with your current link solution uh, to host attendees uh, for large meetings. So basically what Event Builder is doing is hosting all the attendees and content, and the presenters are using their link solution to present the content uh, into Event Builder's uh, solution. Uh, so it's a great, great solution for providing large meeting support, you know, without the high cost of the infrastructure that Microsoft would require uh, and that the Microsoft uh, solution still doesn't scale that well. Uh, plus, the service has some additional uh, features such as uh, registration pages, custom invites, automatic recording, publishing of meetings back out to participants, and additional moderator controls. Uh, so I think it's a great extension and, and fills a major gap. I know that uh, the modality guys, Tom and Justin, you guys have been using it within your company. You, got, you guys have any feedback on uh, on the solution itself? Yeah, the uh, the US guys have used it actually for some public facing meetings, and the feedback's been really positive. Um, as you say, it's it's about using this to kind of extend your link environment. So basically, what happens is event builder join your link meeting, and then they rebroadcast it. So they take the weight off you hosting the meeting on the MCU and they rebroadcast it out um, which allows them to archive it stream it and do kind of pre-user registration um, so the, the 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 benefit potentially is for doing things like public facing meetings they can handle all the registration information you don't have to do that yourselves or, or kind of with link and with email um, so yeah it's quite a nice solution it's worth looking at it is how does i mean on a technical level i mean is there a plugin or something or an agent that runs on the MCU you know on the front ends or how does it 
you invite it, you get an, uh, a, an email address for your account, you invite that to the meeting, then they have a bot that basically just joins the meeting. And obviously, because it joins the meeting, I'm, I mean, I don't know if this is particularly secret, but obviously it joins the meeting, so it gets audio and video and everything else, and then it takes that content and can rebroadcast it. So it's quite neat. It's not, you know, not very invasive. Yeah, we're actually looking into it um, initially for one of the plans I'm looking at, too, as a way to break out larger meetings, too. That's good enough. Excellent. Yeah, I, uh, I attended um, a webinar from um, Alex Lewis over at Modality, and they used that. And from uh, from a participant perspective, it worked really well. So um, I, I think it's a, a great little solution to, to kind of fill that void, like Tim mentioned. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely worth checking out, and uh, and we are going to use it as well for um, webcasts and, and stuff like that. So it's uh, really interesting. Cool. Um, next up, um, Tom, you looked at this uh, Polycom VVX manager tool. Um, does it does it work? Yeah, I haven't actually. Uh, I've had a look at it. I haven't used it in anger yet. It's um, a, a GUI PowerShell script, basically. Um, so for those that have played with VVXs, there's um, a web uh, admin console for each phone, and, and there's about a bazillion options of, of different flick, uh, switches you can flick and such. Um, and, and what uh, James has done, uh, James Custon has done, is, is taken a lot of the key options and just written them into a script so you can check the firmware level, reboot the phone, and, and um, check the pin is set, reset the pin, that type of thing. Um, so it's really making those options more accessible to users. It's quite a quite a nice idea, I think. So basically, uh, a GUI front end to a PowerShell script, kind of like uh, Johan's uh, CFUtil uh, GUI and the uh, and the other similar tools. So yeah, ex- ex- yeah, exactly that. Now I just gotta I gotta get a VVX in my lab. It's uh, it's on the list. <laughs> Santa didn't bring me one. Yeah, I was gonna get. Do you know those cost offhand? Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of different ones. There's a touchscreen version and a non-touchscreen version. So um, I don't know. A couple hundred bucks, though, I think. Yeah, because my CX600 is kind of old, <laughs> so I might like to try it out, too. Oh, but it's your CX600 is newer than my CX700, so. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Tanjay reference. <laughs> hey, I, now we know who's cool. I school. actually love the 700s, and, and we've got... Um, We've got a bunch of them internally, and when a user is given the choice, they almost always pick the 700 because of the touchscreen. Because it's a big old fat screen. Yeah. Yep, yep. If if they took that screen and put it on the 600 or or something, you'd have a phenomenal phone. Anyone have any four-button Tanjis lying around? Uh, I have a 200. No, 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 no. So the CX700 style phones, there, there's an original... Um, the original design had four buttons in at four. I don't know what they're called, context buttons or whatever, instead of just the one. Oh yeah, I have one of those. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, you can't update them anymore. They're like the firmwares, <laughs> you know. It's like some crazy early beta firmware, but yeah. a few of them snuck out into the wild. Didn't it? Doesn't it run like uh, WinCE and? Uh... Yeah, I've got a couple of those, and unfortunately, I, you know, I, I like them because they just have extra buttons on them, you know. <laughs> I know, right? More buttons, more power. More I, yeah, <laughs> I can't get them updated, so. But uh, so, style. Tell us about this uh, improved quality of meeting recordings. Yeah, so um, there was an update where you had um, the ability to do to do HD recording in uh, in Link in the Link client. 
and um, it's uh, actually quite good. And uh, also the audio quality was uh, bumped uh, up. And uh, so now you can do uh, quite good recordings, and you can choose uh, what kind of recording you want to do uh, in the, in the link client on options and recording. Where you can do 480p, 720p, and and also 1080p. Uh, so you, you need to watch out when doing this because um, the recordings will be uh, uh, quite large uh, in size. Um, and 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 one thing I was disappointed with actually with this is it's still 15 frames per second. So uh, it is HD recording, but that's not on the resolution side, but not on the frames per second side. So uh, it still will um, not be as good as the uh, live record, live view of Link. Um, not sure if uh, anyone of you have tried this. Yeah, I, you know, I thought about when it first uh, became available, I thought, oh, that's cool. We can start doing, you know, video podcast. But uh, 15 frames per second, that's kind of a killer. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, they've, They've talked about, you know, well, it, that's to kind of keep the recording size lower, too. But, um, you know, it would be nice if there was an option to kick that up because that way you could do some high-quality HD uh, recordings and then make those available to people. Um, but Yeah, so I, I would uh, really like this to um, bump up the... Um frames per seconds as well uh, for uh, or you can choose to have more frames per seconds to have better uh, recordings that can be published because this is still just high resolution and and not uh, not something you can really share when we get uh, a 4k after. support <laughs> yeah i'm thinking i'm thinking max headroom here 4k support come on let's yeah, yeah 4K. Well. <laughs> no one wants to see you in 4K, John. <laughs> well, that's why 15 frames per second is not enough. Because you know, what with my hands moving, you know, if I just sat here like a normal person and talked really, you know, slowly, you would notice the 15 frames per second. But you know, but what you with can't my hands talk slowly. Around, that's true. I can't. I can't keep my hands from <laughs> from moving. So. Yeah. So, so Jamie, we would really like some more uh, frames per seconds here, and uh, and to do this, make the recording more like the live um, live uh, session for Link. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting um, balance, right? Uh, we on the one hand we want to be able to have you know great recordings, including video. On the other hand, we want to have the resulting files of those great recordings be manageable. Um, so we we don't want to be creating you know two gig recordings that then blow up SharePoint when they get uploaded. So there's a there is a balance there we're trying to strike. The other piece too is. Um, for anyone that does, you know, kind of video production or, or video editing um, work, if you can't hardware offload a lot of that encoding or decoding work, it ends up being super CPU expensive. And so then you start having an issue between the the encoding sucking up a bunch of CPU for what's you know happening in your in your phone call, and that could either impact the other stuff you're trying to do on your workstation, or it could actually impact the media stacks uh, prioritization of getting packets down onto the wire over the air in the right timing. So there's there are some fundamental engineering uh, balance trade-offs that you've got to make. I think as more and more folks get um, 264-based offloaded video chipsets, <clears throat> I forget what the um, I forget what the specific chipsets are, but we actually go through that in some of the TechNet docs. Um, you end up having having a little bit better performance, meaning you're 
your, your actual media stack is able to offload those pieces, and so you can you can then have more CPU cycles to you know crunch your Excel, do your Outlook, etc. While you're on the while you're on your link call. Sure, and and of course uh, it will require some hardware requirements, but um, it would be nice to have the option though for uh, yeah, those right. professionals. Totally, totally. There's always the question of how much rope do we give people to uh, to hang themselves with. <laughs> we want to make sure it's it's just enough, not too much. <laughs> it would be cool to do this in PowerShell though, like this. Yeah, no, no, totally, totally. I hear you. <laughs> cool. Um, Link and SDN software defined networking. John, you uh, you read a, on this the the recent announcement from uh, Microsoft. What's happening with that? Yeah, well, you know, that was just, I was just actually going to type it in, in the chat window. Well, the irony is we have the person who wrote the article on the podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> what a crazy segue that is, right? <laughs> so, yeah, John. So, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and honestly, I didn't really understand you know what it was to, when I first read it. But yeah, I mean, it, you mean, I, I, you know, if you would love to, and, and you're also going to be presenting a session at, at Link Conference on it as well too, with. Uh, with uh, some other people, I yeah, think. with Pascal specifically, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so Pascal Menzies has been uh, has been my partner in crime in this, and he's been super busy and super um, uh, public and, and 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 around, you know. So if if you're you know in any of the SDN or networking shows uh, in the next in the last three months or in the next four months, you're probably going to see Pascal there. He's been super visible, you know, both. Both on that side and in the standards body side as well. So there's a few different standards bodies that are that are that are coming together to think about not just first SDN kind of all up the the concept of having software inform what's happening in in the networking layer, um, and then also specifically the way that that SDN architectures can can take advantage of application level services and historically a lot of that stuff has been around um, giant cloud scale data centers like you know Amazon and Azure and so forth um, being able to, to move around VMs and have the underlying network infrastructure move with them we see a tremendous opportunity to have link you see applications generally link specifically be able to inform applications for the services that they need right so instead of having kind of a static quality of service of you know marking packets and so forth, to actually have the application say, hey, I'm now going to make a video call to this endpoint, and the network can say, oh, I get it. These are the these are the routes that it's going to take. These are the different hops it's going to it's going to have, and I'm going to push down a policy that enables those routers along along the way to prioritize those packets. Uh, it's, Really, really interesting space. Super early, um, and and kind of super nascent in some of the in some of the thinking. But we think it's just a tremendous opportunity to 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 bring the power of Link, um, you know, further down the down the OSI stack, as it were. Yeah, very cool. I mean, it, 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 and it, uh, Susan Bradley proposed an article back in like April on it too. But um, your announcement uh, last month was the first I you know heard heard it brought up again. Yeah, we've been working on this for over a year, you know. So, <clears throat> what we wanted to do was was not just you know wave a strategy blog and go like, hey, we're thinking about this. Isn't that fun? And we didn't want to you know just have a uh, have an announcement that was you know an API that nobody could do anything with. You know, we wanted to have it have the API 
we wanted to have the strategy behind it, and we wanted to be able to to talk about some partners that we've been working with over this time, who have who've been able to bring this stuff to market. Um, and and having all three was what uh, was was where the uh, was where the timing came from. And so at the conference, we're actually going to split up the topic into four different sessions. We're going to have a session that, that goes through at a high level, like what is SDN and, and, and what does it mean to think about unified communications with SDN. We have a session that's devoted to wireless with Ruba. We have a session that support, that's um, specifically around diagnostics, so how you can use the SDN API with some, with some networking vendors that think about you know, tying media flow information with network event information in order to figure out why a particular call failed. <clears throat> and then we're going to have another session that's um, completely devoted to kind of doing the quality of service work um, with SDN, kind of the, the scenario that I, that I just ran through. And so, um, and so four individual sessions where we're going to have tons of demos and, and really kind of go into this stuff in depth. Uh, this is a really cool uh, topic, and I think it's really important and really good to see Microsoft uh, open an API on this. Uh, my question is, um, do you think the customer need to uh, switch out or upgrade or... Um, do something with their network, existing network equipment, uh, yeah, right. in order to go for this, or could it could this just be an appliance and you could reuse your existing network components? That, that, that's that's probably the the, the ten million dollar question, right? And and so there's there's two um, two aspects to this. The first is what you're actually looking to do with SDN, and we've we've kind of articulated these three separate kind of scenarios that. That we talk about them separately, but they're really interrelated around first diagnostics and then quality of service and then orchestration. Being able to do quality of service type stuff, but across the network layer. So imagine all of the uh, elements that need to be aligned in order for a link media flow to happen from your application delivery controller through your firewall into your intrusion detection systems and everything else, all working off of the SDN API and all working off of a, of a northbound interface that says, for this particular media flow, I need to have all these ports opened, and I need to have the IDS configured the right way, I need to have the firewall configured the right way, and the, the application delivery controller running the packets in the right direction. Having those all function off of, off of an SDN paradigm, which is kind of far off, but we think that we can uh, think we can get there. <clears throat> but the ultimate question is, you know, if you're doing diagnostics, then yeah, absolutely. Um, Nectar is the partner that we've been working with on the diagnostics front, and that's a um, that's an appliance type form factor that you, that you buy from Nectar. They plug in the SDN API, and then they're able to correlate the information that's happening on the wire along with the information that's happening from Link, and they're, be able, they're able to say, oh, your particular call went sideways because when it passed through this router, that router wasn't configured in the, in the right way in order to um, prioritize those packets, or there was some other transient network event that happened, and we can kind of trace into that. Cool. Doing that sort of debugging manually is really hard, mm -hmm. right? On the, on the quality of service front, it really depends upon where you're getting your network infrastructure from. And um, and what their um, adherence is to the the kind of 
the standards that are coming out in the SDN industry, generally when you when you think about SDN um, today, it's related to a standard called OpenFlow that defines the way a software-based controller talks to pieces of network infrastructure that's the, called the southbound interface. Um, and there's millions of ports that are out there, network ports that are out there that have that are OpenFlow enabled. Um, HP has been a huge proponent of this um, kind of architecture. So <clears throat> there's there's already a lot of that infrastructure that's that's out in the in in the wild, but that's just not being um, used with a with an SDN controller today. So we think that there's there's opportunity for customers to have um, not a terribly painful upgrade cycle. Um, Aruba is also doing some of the same same stuff where they're bringing in the SDN capabilities into their um, into their Wi-Fi controller architecture, and that's not a rip and replace. That's a software upgrade to their existing um, controller infrastructure. Awesome. Will there be any um, like will will this will, will any of this have to like exist at the at dialogue level, sub dialogue level, or is it totally separate? You know. No, no. So what what comes out of the API? So the API is a it's a RESTful API that spits out the the tuple of information that describes the that describes the flow. So it's it's at a higher level than the than the dialogue, right? The dialogue is a is a bunch of back and forths that then set up the that then set up the flow. Um, imagine after the after the SDP negotiation, and we know where the flow is going to go. Then that's what exits out of the SDN API and gets consumed by a controller. Yeah, so it's so it's not as chatty as SIP, right? Which is a good thing, you know. If if you kind of scale this thing up to, you know, lots and lots of media flows and lots of link servers and everything else, we we really want to give only the pertinent uh, information over to the to the SDN controller so they can they can do what they need to do at the network layer. Very cool. And of course, uh, you know more about that at the link conference and. Uh... Uh, well, there, I, I, I sense a theme. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to plug. I'll stop. There now. will be more. <laughs> <laughs> but we're also going to do more on uh, this. Is again, this is just the beginning of the stuff we're doing with SDN. So there's there's a whole series of blog posts that we want to put out that, that describe in more detail the the scenarios around Wi-Fi and diagnostics and quads that we're doing with our partners. And it's there's there's a ton there, and it's it's exciting to. Um, to be a part of this stuff. This is this is part of the fun fun of fun work of the job. Cool. Yeah, very cool. And that does it for link topics for this episode. Heading over to the exchange side of the fence, uh, Michael, you uh, wanted to talk about estimating the size of an exchange online archive. What's happening with that? Uh, well, it's it's regarding a uh, uh, script that I wrote with the help of uh, Michel de Broglie um, for something that I came across in, in a lot of my projects uh, around archiving and exchange, and more notably uh, exchange online archiving, so where you have your uh, mailbox on-premises and the archive in the cloud. Um, I found that, that pretty much every customer uh, asked me, so uh, what size will uh, this user's archive be? Um, and they wanted to know it up front for um, many reasons. Um, the most important one being uh, 
knowing what to do with the archive because uh, basically what you could do is uh, just provision an online archive, uh, enable a retention policy for that user and let the managed uh, folder assistant do its work. But imagine you have a 10 gig mailbox, someone enables your archive um, and says well everything older than 6 months has to be moved to Office 365 um, well the MFA kicks in and then you know maybe pulls out 8 gigs of data um, from your mailbox. Um, and if you do that for 10 years at a time, uh, you'd potentially be, you know, seeing uh, 80 gigs move to Office 365 uh, in the middle of the day, something you probably don't want to do. So um, based on that, I, I started working uh, on a script to kind of find out how big the archive would be based on the uh, expiration date uh, in, in uh, X amount of days and uh, came up with a script which is a bit of a, a mix and mingle of, of things I found from other user architects. So I used some of Cirque and Varuglu's uh, scripts uh, which used to be in his tool that he developed, um, added some things of myself and then asked Michelle to, uh, to kind of take a look at it, validate that what I was doing was, was kind of right and basically came up with a script that when you run it against one or multiple mailboxes will give you uh, the estimated size of the archive. So if you take a mailbox and you say, well, the retention policy is uh, 60 days or even 300 days, it will go into the mailbox and then uh, evaluate the uh, um, every item in the mailbox against those 300 days and everything that's older than the X amount of days will be calculated into the archive size. Um, but there are some drawbacks. Uh, since it's the first version, it literally does what I just said. It goes in and takes all the items um, from the mailbox. But if you, for instance, excluded some folders, or better said, if you uh, don't want uh, uh, calendar items to be to be archived, there is no way to tell the script to disregard calendar items. It's something I'm currently working on for a second version. But due to some other things, I uh, didn't have much time to, to, to get that done yet. But that's the idea. Very cool. Very cool. I know that we, uh, my company does a lot of migrations from, you know, third-party Exchange archiving solutions into Exchange 2013, you know, native archiving. And one of the things we always have to do is, is look at, um, you know, how big is the archive going to be so that we can size those databases accordingly. And um, this looks like it could really help out. So we'll definitely yeah. have to take a look at that. So thanks for the hard work. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and while we got you, um, uh, publishing multiple services using a single IP with Kemp, I know that um, you know some places don't always have an abundance of extra you know public IPs or uh, or whatever the case may be. So uh, uh, what's going on with this? Well, uh, basically, it came from our uh, own production environment where we we have multiple IP addresses, so that's not much of an issue. But uh, we use Office Web Apps um, for Exchange as well, and we didn't. Well, we kind of didn't want to spend an IP address for Office Web Apps. So um, previously, we used uh, TMG to uh, you know uh, have a listener, and then based on the host name, either go to the Office Web App server or go to the Exchange server. But we recently kicked out our TMG, uh, so we we were looking for an alternative. And I at that point looked into whether our Camp um, load balancer could do that, and found out that it was pretty you know easy, straightforward to do. It's it's a bit of a work that needs to be done in the the Camp load master. 
but um, that's how I kind of came to the solution of having a single external IP address and have multiple services um, living behind it. And I think earlier this week, was it Justin or someone else on the, the UC Architects DL um, asked this, uh, the same yeah, question? Okay. Yeah, um, said, well, did anyone have that running? Uh, and it was Dave. He said, well, you should blog about it, which I kind of did. And to my um, uh, amazement, uh, it was picked up in, in, by a lot of people. It has been retweeted quite a lot. Um, so apparently there was a need for, uh, you know, for, for this. It seems that a lot of companies are struggling or dealing with the same issue, uh, that they don't want to spend their IP addresses, uh, which is understandable uh, for little services or they even want to, you know, share multiple services behind an IP address for whatever reason. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I sort of ran into this um, last week where I was configuring up a Kemp VLM and had one website published already, the link web services to the pool, and then I was like, okay, I need to publish uh, Office Web Apps, and I was like, this isn't as straightforward as it is on the TMG. I can't just specify the host header and then take care of it for me. So, um, yeah, I was sort of reaching out to you and then uh, checking out stuff myself. I think I found in three different uh, camp guides eventually how to do it with uh, the sub-virtual servers and the, the content uh, filtering and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, definitely does what it says in the tin and does it well, so... Yeah, it does it very well, and I I actually have a second article coming up where I talk about you know redirecting using the the load master, because previously we we have a bunch of domain names uh, that when they hit the um, the TMG previously we redirected them uh, to another um, uh, domain name. For instance, we use that for auto discover. Uh, we needed that functionality as well, and it's something that the camp can do with. Uh, uh, header modification rules as well, so that's something I'm uh, I'm going to write about in the next week probably. And and I should add that, um, and this really has nothing to do with the fact that Kemp is one of our sponsors, but um, uh, uh, Bargav Shukla, who is um, a link and Exchange MCM, he's a double MCM, and now an Exchange uh, MVP is going to be on uh, either the next episode or the episode after that to talk about. Um, you know, load balancing in general, as well as how it applies to to the Kemp stuff. So he's, if if you've ever watched him do any of his sessions, he he knows load balancing inside and out. So it would definitely be some good content there. I'll definitely be there. <laughs> um, I miss it. Yeah, John, uh, Outlook Anywhere proxy issues from uh, 2013 yeah. to 2007, or the other way around, 2007 to 2013. It's 13 to seven. Okay. Um, yeah, um, uh, it's an article. I, I don't know who, which one of us came across it. I think it was my, me. I forget now. But um, it, it was posted just uh, just last week um, or a couple weeks ago, and uh, it's an interesting issue. The, the, the link is, is is probably the best bet because it's a pretty detailed um, article. But just basically, shorter was you know proxies from 13 to 2007 servers were failing. And ultimately, um, what it came down to is that on a multi-role box, you know, the registry, there's a couple of registries keys missing um, that weren't handing off 2007 correctly. Um, and so, uh, you know, the article kind of goes goes into, you know, how to uh, rectify it. And next thing's pretty interesting. It looks like he had to get, uh, you know, Premier support involved as well. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a SMTV4IT.net uh, blog, and it's Mike uh, DiVergilio. Gilio? Sorry, probably not if I butchered your name, but... Um, yeah, I mean it's a pretty good read. It's uh, something interesting, and you know, I, you know, h- how many scenarios are there going to be for proxy back to 07? You know, there's going to be some, so it's um, probably worthwhile taking a look at. Excellent. 
Um, and while we're talking email, uh, Office 365 token disclosure. Um, our own Dave Stork had kind of submitted this as a, as a topic, but he's not here today. So, Michael, uh, you've taken a look at this, right? Yeah, I uh, was Paul Robichaud uh, blogged about it a few days ago um, that uh, there was a security um, bulletin by Microsoft which um, which patched a uh, an issue which apparently already existed since May of last year, uh, which was reported in May of last year, where someone could um, get a hold of your Office 365 authentication token and as a result uh, be able to get your documents from SharePoint online. Uh, basically, what as, as far as I understood, because I read through the article pretty quickly, it's that um, if if someone sends you a targeted email um, with a link to a document, uh, asking you to open that document, and you click the link, then um, it will trigger a Word document to open on a remote server. Uh, you'll get a pop-up prompt like, "Hey, do you want to open this document in Word?" What you'll do is you'll probably click yes, um, the document opens and then it triggers the authentication to that remote server and as Office 2013 is all in the cloud, it will just willingly send its uh, its uh, credentials to that remote server or better said, it will send its authentication token to that remote server and in return, that server will open that document. Um, so for the end user, there's nothing um, unusual to, to the entire process he clicks a link, works, uh, Word asks, uh, asks to open the document, it opens the document, but in the background, the remote server, which could be a benign server, um, would actually have your token now and use that token to open your SharePoint Online library and get your documents. Um, so to me, that's a pretty big issue, um, albeit that... Uh, Someone has to send you a link, and you have to click the link, um, and you just have to click, yes, I want to open it, yes, I'm sure. Uh, but imagine in a company of a several thousand users, um, and someone sends a few hundred emails out, I bet there is at least one guy that opens the document, uh, and that could be a, a resume or a price quotation. That could be just anything. Um, yeah, you know, if, if I were to be a hacker, I, I'd... I'd certainly make sure that I put all effort into it, that it looks genuine, uh, so that any someone would actually click it, and that I gather all those tokens and, and be able to get their their documents. So, um, Paul kind of goes off in his in his uh, in his article saying, "Well, you should patch," and I I wholeheartedly agree that this is a a huge thing. At least it is to me. So if you're using Office 365 for your production environment, then uh, there is no reason to hold off on this this security patch, even though it's not a critical patch. So I thought it was a important patch, but I would st- I would rather. I would have liked to see it to be a critical patch anyway. So that's basically it. Okay, good. Which opens up, sorry, um, which makes me think, yeah, uh, because there was a, a pointer to the NSA thing as well, um, that it's like, it, it's almost too good to be true. It, it almost looks like a sort of a backdoor, which opens the possibility, uh, which I just don't want to believe. But, you know, it's the... Tenth or one hundred uh, hundredth uh, thing in line where there's a security issue regarding cloud-based services, and and now this, 
that's kind of you know worries me. Yeah, and and rightly so. And and while we're talking about uh, security updates, I, I know it was a while since uh, our last episode came out. Most of us were away for the holidays, but um, on December uh, December tenth, uh, Microsoft released uh, a security bulletin thirteen dash one hundred five and marked it as critical, um, where uh, an issue was identified that could allow for remote um, code execution in web-ready document viewing and in DLP, um, uh, data loss prevention, in Exchange Server. So there is a a hot fix out for that, um, and we'll get a link up on the summary page for that. So make sure you patch your servers so that uh, these uh, security issues cannot be exploited. And that does it for uh, exchange topics uh, for this episode. We do have a bunch of events to mention real quick. Uh, We'll have links for all of them up on the summary page. Uh, But all user groups. So first up is uh, the Midlands uh, Office 365 user group meeting. It is February 12th. Um, and, and you can check out their website for that. There is uh, another event at um, uh, the Link Conference called Link Up at Las Vegas. Uh, a bunch of vendors getting together and having uh, a party at a restaurant. Um, so Audio Codes and Kemp and Jabra and Intellipeer and uh, the Link user group um um, group uh, headed up by Randy Wintle and uh, Kevin Peters and Adam Curry. Those those guys will be there. So um, you do have to register for that. So um, so check out the website for that. Next up is um, uh, Link User Group. Uh, speaking of Kevin and Randy and Adam, uh, they've now added three more locations to their uh, their juggernaut of uh, user groups. Uh, they now have uh, locations in Seattle, Portland, and Boise. And uh, the cool. meetings should start, I think, on the on January 15th. I looked just before we started recording, and they didn't have the dates up yet, but uh, we should see them in the next next couple of days. So uh, linkusersgroup.com, um, and they've always got fabulous content there. Uh, the Colorado UC User Group meeting is January 30th at the Microsoft offices in Denver. Uh, the Minneapolis UC User Group meeting is January 16th at Avtex in Bloomington. Um, the UC user group, uh, of Norway is having their meeting, uh, January 15th in Oslo and, uh, our own Justin will be there talking about, uh, link scalability, uh, office 365 tech X event. It's a two day event in Stockholm on January 23rd and 24th. And, um, uh, Tom, you guys have your user group meeting in London, right? That's right. So we have our group meeting on the uh, 30th. Um, there's a few, uh, 30th of January, that is. There's a few more seats left on that now. There's, I think there's about 10 left. So uh, by the time this goes out, I'll be working registered for that. Um, there's also a northern uh, user group starting up that's having a meeting on the uh, uh, 12th of February. And we'll have the, the links on the, uh, the podcast notes. When's that Hyperloop going to get built? Man, I need to get over to London faster than, <laughs> than it normally takes. <laughs> It's all going on over here. <laughs> I know, right? Yep, time for time for a trip. That's right. All right, and uh, and that does it for us this time. Jamie, thanks so much for being here. We uh, we truly enjoyed it. You're welcome back anytime. And yeah, thanks really, for thanks tolerating much. my ramblings. And I'll love <laughs> to come back. Definitely, we'll do it again live and uh, live and real at the Link Conference in Vegas. Everyone needs to go sign up. Linkconf.com. I'll be done. 
<laughs> there you go. Uh, thanks uh, to our own Andrew Price, who's going to be the editor. So hopefully it's uh, it, it's easy work there for you, Andrew. Um, a reminder about our two sponsors. This episode is proudly sponsored by Instant Technologies with solutions for linky discovery, real-time alerts, and content center deployments. For information on Instant or to try a free evaluation, visit instant-tech.com or download and try their e-discovery application at tryhrauditor.com. And uh, Kemp, Kemp Technologies is the number one price performance load balancer for Microsoft workloads and is a gold certified Microsoft partner in both messaging and communications. Kemp's load balancers and ADCs come with configuration templates for link and exchange. Kemp's new virtual load balancers are the most powerful on the market and have all the same features as their hardware load balancers. For more information and to download a free trial, go to kemptechnologies.com. We want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at theucarchitects.com. Follow us on Twitter at theucarchitects. Uh, check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash theucarchitects. And we have a group on LinkedIn. Uh, our podcast episodes are available on our own Windows Phone app, the iTunes Store, and in your favorite RSS podcast client like Outlook. See our website for links to everything. We'll see you for our next episode with Steve Hosting. Thank you.